0: This is the Hockey News podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Hockey News podcast. I'm Matt Larkin. I'm joined by Ken Campbell and a statue of Ryan Kennedy because he's got some computer problems. He's he's going to freeze from time to time. And we apologize, but this is the world we live in right now. It's it's the Zoom world, okay? So, we know that we're freezing We're probably all gonna freeze from time to time. I'm just giving a quick disclaimer as we get started here because there's nothing we can do. There really is nothing we can do. So we're just gonna do the best we can. You'll be able to hear everything we say at the very least. So let's get started fellas. I wanna start with something that I think I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say about it because it kind of hits close to home given our career choices. And we saw last week, Jacob Voracek of the Flyers during a post-game Zoom conference. He rips into the reporter, Mike Silski. Uh, and dropping a lot of F-bombs and, you know, tired of, I guess, some, some critical articles that, that Silski had written. So what I'm wondering is, where do you guys stand on this? I know there was talk of maybe the NHL looking into it, finding Vorchek. Are you Team Vorchek? Do you feel like he had every right to speak his mind, or do you think he chose the wrong forum? Um, Kenny, I want to start with you. What do you think of the situation?
2: Well, that, it's, it's really interesting, because I think this is this is a creature of our of our of technology today and social media and everything like when i covered the toronto maple leafs back in the stone age uh, that that happened in the dressing room once a week you know but, but nobody ever saw it right um and it was usually happening to me so maybe there was something to that um but uh but but anyways i you know to me i, I think it was a one-off i think it was you know i don't think we're gonna see an epidemic of of of, of guys going off on on members of the media i think you know to me I, I don't have a huge problem with it. Um, you know, I mean, as someone who who regularly dishes, dishes it out, uh, I think sometimes you got to be able to take it. And, uh, and I, I found when I was dealing with that sort of thing, the best thing to do would be to come right back to the guy. <laughs> because I remember Pat Quinn used to pull that stuff with me all the time. He'd always say, well, why why should I, uh, you know, why should I say anything to you? You're just going to write what you want anyways. And he, he did it about four or five times and then finally I had had enough. And in a pack news conference, I said, okay, Pat, I'll make a deal with you. The day you start signing my paychecks is the day I'll start writing what you want to write. And he was like, Hem, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> anyways, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm not, I don't think it's like a huge thing. I think, um, I think people got quite a kick out of it. And, uh, and, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's probably a one-off. Mm. For me,
0: I'm kind of a two minds because I don't mind the accountability. I'm not familiar with that writer. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, maybe he's crossed the line before, um, maybe he hasn't, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. But I, I also wonder would Voracek have said that in a scrum, in, a, in an actual physical scrum, because with these Zoom calls, which have been tremendously helpful, the only sort of drawback is there's is, there's no back and forth. You know, you ask your question and then, you know, they put you back on mute because you want to get the sound quality and all that. Um, so, you know, the guy didn't really have any chance to retort. Um, whereas in a scrum, you know, you could have the classic John Tortorella, Larry Brooks back and forth that we all know and love. So. For me, as long as Boracek would have said that to his face, I'm okay with it. Um, My only worry is that players will use the the mute function of Zoom to kind of like dunk on guys without any repercussion.
1: Right. And I think you raise a good point. You know, Ken, you mentioned it as a one-off, but I'm going to call it a two-off because we saw Austin Matthews did it to Steve Simmons already as well. And I do think there's that extra power when, you know, the reporter can't respond. I've, I've mixed feelings. I do think that, you know, Voracek has his right to an opinion and and I was looking into some stuff that Sielski wrote and there is a long-term pattern of of criticizing Voracek. So I get the idea, but it's like, you know, it's one thing to say it in the heat of the moment. It's happened to me before Uh, Jonathan Quick just ripped into me a year ago after a game that the Kings lost and fair enough, you know, he was fired up. He was the goalie of the losing team. I get it. But when it's calculated like that and, deliberately chosen on a forum in which the reporter can't retort. I get kind of petty vibes, a little bit childish vibes from it. I, I like that Vorchuk stood up for himself, but that didn't bother me, but just the sort of deliberate, like it, clearly it was like a planned executed thing that he was waiting to do. And it, I don't think it was a good look. Even, even if he was trying to win the debate, I don't think he came across well. And you know, it is fair to criticize both ways. Sure you know, athlete and reporter, reporter writes something negative, athlete can stand up for himself, but the reporter is not the one making $8.25 million. So there's a certain expectation that comes with, I think the, you know, being a pro athlete, earning that salary, if I was making $8.25 million, I think it would be a lot like there, you could publish think pieces criticizing, you know, my comma splices or something. And it'd be fair, like, oh, I'm making eight, eight million plus, you know, you got to hold me to a high standard. So I'm kind of surprising myself almost. I feel a little bit more old school about it than I expected to just because specifically what you said, Ryan, the build, like the lack of the back and forth. I just feel like it was, I don't know. It, it, it comes across as a bit petty to me. Um, another situation I, I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say. Uh, and, that, and this is, involves another player who feels like he's being dissed. Uh, Keith Yandel, he's already the all-time Ironman among NHL defensemen. And he's on pace by next season to beat Doug Jarvis's record all the time. And we know, obviously, uh, there was talk of him being a healthy scratch in Florida. It didn't happen yet, but there's still, the assumption is that it's going to happen at some point. And, you know, he's been told, there was a report from Frank Star Valley of TSN that he's not part of their plans. Um, so I'm curious, you know, Ken, I know, we, we've both written about this in the past week. Yeah. So, and I know in your mind, you see it as kind of nothing personal. I, I have some different opinions on it because I think there's a lot more deliberate posturing going on, but I want to give you the floor first on this. Um, why is it that you, that you think in this case that Yandel can't be upset if Florida's trying to, to push him out?
2: I, I, I think he has every right to be upset. I mean, yeah. I mean, players want to play and, you know, I mean, they, they tend to take these things personally, um you know he may very well be part of their future after the first game when he scored a goal and played really well um to me it's just it's it's just one of those things where it's 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 I don't think it's personal like I I, you know I mean if you want to question Joel Quenville go ahead first of all (laughs) go ahead question one of the best coaches that's ever coached uh, in the NHL that's that's fine if you want to question his his ability to um to read the talent and to, to, and to, uh, you know, make the right roster decisions. That's one thing, but like, to me, like I said, what, you know, somebody in hockey told me one time a long time ago, uh, that, uh, you know, I I've yet to meet a coach that wants to lose games and, you know, I mean, what have we said about the Florida Panthers every year for the past 500 years, they get off to terrible starts. They dig themselves into a hole that they that they can't get out of, and by you, know, <laughs> you know, relatively speaking, middle of November, they're already out of the playoffs, right? So, I mean, you know, Joel Coinville is gonna put out the lineup that he thinks gives him the best chance to win games. And he at that time did not think that Keith Yandel was was part of that. He didn't think that Keith Yandel was the was part of the best group that could help them win games. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, these things end, these, these streaks end. I mean, Doug Jarvis had the streak. How did it end? Healthy scratch. Gary Unger had the streak before that. How did it end? Healthy scratch. You know, I mean, and then the one before that was Steve Larmer, and it was a contract dispute, you know, so very rarely does it end with a guy getting actually getting hurt and not being able to play. I mean, Cogliano's ended because of a spe- of a suspension, right? So I don't have a problem with it. And you know what, if, the, if there are deeper machinations here, you know, uh, that, you know, they want him to waive his no trade and they're sort of holding the, 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 you know, the streak against them. Well, then, I mean, that's not personal either. It might be Dicky, (laughs) and it might be not the greatest thing to do. And it might be not the greatest way to treat a veteran, but I, it's not personal. I mean, they've got to get out of the mire there. And this team has been, has been in a, in a hole for a long time. And I, and I think that they, uh, you know, they've got to find ways to get out of it there's a couple of guys there that weren't there when Keith Yandel signed both behind the bench and as the GM. So there's not like a ton of loyalty towards that guy in that respect. So I, you know, I, I see it as an unfortunate situation, but I don't see it as one where, you know, they're, they're out to get him or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it, it's a business and particularly in a salary cap world, you have to do what having keith yandel was the best idea because he played really well but yeah you know the panthers they they have to think of this in sort of a cold way but i also will say let's remember this the next time a player does not want to move their no trade clause that's their business and they have the right so don't say oh he's not thinking of his team No, he signed that contract Mm -hmm. and, you know, he and his agent lobbied for that no trade clause. That's why it's there. It cuts both ways. And I think for whatever reason, fans side with ownership more than they do with players, which has always been really odd in my mind, uh, because the players are the ones that you're actually watching on the ice. But I think maybe it's because, you know, we can all picture ourselves running a hockey team, but Most of us know we can never play on those NHL teams. Perhaps that's why. But, you know, in Yandel's situation, um, it is business. Although I will say that, you know, if this goes really sideways on the Panthers, you have to think about what free agents would think about this. You know, if you're thinking of signing with Florida and you see the way they treated Yandel, Does that make you second-guess that? And maybe you choose a different team. That's something they would have to be concerned about if they don't handle this properly from here on out because obviously it got off to a bit of a rocky start.
1: Mm -hmm. Very good point. And I think it's a legitimate consideration because Yandel, we know, is one of the the best-liked players in the league. The NHLPA, the players poll, they voted him the funniest guy in the league two years Mm -hmm. in a row. So he's got a lot of backers, a lot of supporters, and that includes his own team. And I, I think, you know, I land on a different side of, of this this specific debate. I'm, I typically don't consider these things personal. But when you look at someone like Yandel, who to me very clearly is good enough to be a starter on the team, it's not like he's being benched on merit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a lot more going on here. And I've been doing some sniffing around, talking to some people that are close to the situation. And, and it's not it's not based on what's happening on the ice what's going on there right we know the expansion draft is coming we know yandel has a no movement clause which means he must be protected and this is this is kind of like a blackmail situation it's using the iron man street to try and force him out knowing that it's precious to him and knowing that he'd be, he be willing to move it maybe if he wants to keep the streak going because he knows he can set the all-time record next year so to me that's it's pretty low uh, just because of the fact that it's not it's not upfront and honest. My understanding from, from their camp, is like if, if you were just being honest with gandalf and said, listen, it's not going to work. You're not part of our plans. We, we need you to, to waive this. And, and you weren't using the streak as kind of like this carrot. I think it would be easier to stomach. But to me, it's, I don't know. I think if you treat it as a case-by-case basis, I think this is one where I can I can see why the player is taking it personal. And I, I, we don't know that going to going to waive it. My understanding from what I've been told is that He's definitely not initiating any talks of waiving it. If he's going to waive it, it's probably going to be just for Boston because that's you know, Massachusetts' is home state. And oddly enough, they lost Troy Krug. Maybe they could use a replacement on the left side and work the power play. But other than that, I don't know. I, I think he's going to be staying in Florida, and I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the expansion draft, but we'll see when the time comes. Uh, so the season, as, as we record this podcast, it's not even a week old. But it's fun to overreact sometimes. So I want to hear your overreactions. We'll start with positive. So Ryan, give me a, a, a happy overreaction, a hot take, something you're really excited about already early in the season.
0: Well, I'm going to go with the New York Islanders, and uh, in particular, Semyon Varlamov in net, you know, two straight shutouts. Um, you know, this is a team, they're they're in a very competitive division. And, when you know, when we think about the Islanders, we think about, know, that really sort of tough grinding playoff team, Um, you don't necessarily think about them as much in the regular season, but this year in particular, you know, they had to get off to a good start and they had to put up points early just to make sure that they get into that top four. So far, so good. You know, I mean, they, they re-signed Matt Barzell, um, you know, so they they got him uh, under contract before the season started, which was obviously super important because he's the most talented player they have. And they had to get some wins early and they are doing that. And I think that's, you know, that's really key because they're not fun to play in the playoffs. And I think there's a lot of teams in that division that are just hoping that, you know, the Islanders finish fifth and they don't have to worry about them. But so far, looking like they're the, uh, the old competitive Isles that, uh, you know, everybody loves to hate unless you're an Islanders fan, in which case
2: you just love them. Nick Suzuki is poised to become the next Patrice Bergeron, in my opinion. Um, I just see so many similarities when I watch that guy play at both ends of the ice. Boy, he, gets, he just gets sticks in lanes and he's you know—he—he's—he's he's not part of their main penalty killing, but he does some penalty killing, plays on the power play. Um, you know, their, their points in their first years were fairly even uh, in terms of their production in their first years. And, and I just, I, I don't know, I just see a guy that 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 has all, that checks all those boxes, plays both ends of the ice, um, you know, really good offensively, can skate, is, sm- oh, is super smart. Um, I, I'm just like super impressed with Nick Suzuki. I think that, uh, you know, I, I think he's, I, you know, I think the Canadians have finally found that number one center around whom they can build. And and uh, and I, I just, I think the sky's the limit for this guy.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I'm excited about the Habs too. And I'm excited about Alexander Romanov. He's someone, you know, even just from the first game, he was involved everywhere. I think he was being used in the penalty kill. He was being used in offense situations. He had that amazing stretch pass to, to spring to tar. Some people were wondering if his offense was going to translate to the NHL level. They knew his defense was, but I think we're seeing already a total package from Romanov. And I think, you know, I've been saying in my mind, I'm predicting he's going to evolve into a Norse trophy caliber defenseman down the road. And so now, like you you said, Kevin, Nick Suzuki, we're seeing some pillars in place for this Habs franchise. You still have Cole Caulfield on the way, the really good farm system. And just in general, my my answer was, you know, who am I excited about? Who am I overreacting to already? It's just the Habs and their team. I I think I picked them to finish second in the division. There was some heat that I got for that, but I just like the makeup of their team. I think they're very complete. And now if they have that number one center, that was supposedly the one thing they're missing. I think they're dangerous. I like the way they play. Uh, So let's hear some overreactions to some negative storyline. What are you worried about already, Ryan?
0: I'm worried about the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yes, they beat Washington uh, the other day. But I feel like those first two games against Philly were a harbinger. Uh, The defense did not look good at all. And, you know, it it was the entire defensive core, you know, I I came into the season worried about, you know, Michael Matheson and Cody Cece, but just as a whole, like none of them played very well. And, you know, again, going to that division, um, that that East division, there's only going to be four teams that make it. And you sort of have to start counting off and saying, okay, well, Philly's probably going to be there. Washington's probably going to be there. Um, You know, Boston's probably going to be there so that's one spot for the islanders the penguins the rangers like it's it's a bit of a blob there and i just you know like the goaltending wasn't there the first two games and even though matt murray didn't play well last year i feel like he was a good security blanket for tristan jerry and when you take that blanket away Sometimes the guy left behind can really suffer. And yes, it's early. It's only been a couple of games, but I worry that this Pittsburgh team is exactly who I thought they would be.
2: Guys, I think Edmonton's in trouble here. Uh they're 1 and 3 all on home, all games on home ice they lost. Or well, they went 1 and 3 on home ice. I'm not sure if- what home ice means this year but uh they haven't left their building yet and they're one and three you know we've we talked about it before the season you know you get you get behind the eight ball early and you you, you start you know you, the, the losses start piling up and it's hard to get back back into the race but I think the thing that concerns me the most is you know um you know new year same old oilers right uh like I was listening to their their availability last night with uh with uh, Dave Tippett and he was harping on, you know, their competitiveness, their competitiveness. In game four, he's already gone to the, we're not competitive enough well, especially on like, like, especially defensively. Like they're, they just don't, they just don't compete defensively. They just, they just, there's too many lapses. There's too many, too much laissez-faire, not enough, not enough strength, not enough like grit along the boards, that kind of thing. Uh, they just don't compete defensively. And, and, you know, I don't know how you go into a year with, with the goaltending that the Edmonton Oilers have. I mean, you know, Miko Koskinen last night against the, the Canadians was okay, but the fact of the matter is he got out goaltended by Jake Allen. Um, and that was, that was probably a difference. And I mean, their power play was 0 for 7 and gave up a shorty last night. I think in their last two games, they're 0 for 10 and they have two shorthanded goals against them. So I mean, if you're not going to fire on those cylinders, I mean, you know, you, you think the Oilers are a team that, you know, they, they, okay, they'll give up four and score five, but you know, they're not even doing that right now.
1: Right. And the scary thing is last year, their power play was literally the best power play in 41 years in the yeah. NHL. Yeah. As I speak now, by the way, guys, I'm, I'm muting in between, but my, my children are home. This is, this is COVID life. So if you hear any background noise listeners, it's my, four-year-old and my two-month-old. This is this is the life we live right now, man. Nothing I can do about it, uh, but I'll try to talk over it for now. Uh, I'm with you, Ken. My pick is the Oilers as well. Uh, you know, you look at them at five on five. They're outshot. They're outchance. They're outscored. And to me, it's, there's that meme that goes around. It's like it's like the meme says, what are you going to do? Stab me? It's a quote. It says from man stabbed. And it kind of reminds me of the Oilers. It's like, yeah, it's almost as if hmm, they didn't get goaltending and now goaltending is a problem. Like when everyone can see wow. it, when the, when the lay person can see it, it's there on paper and it's not addressed. It's like, gee, what a surprise. Mikko Koskin, the save percentage is 897. Right after he and Mike Smith were probably the reason the Oilers got bounced from the playoffs last year. And I also, to me, seeing Ethan Bear, a healthy scratch already, Caleb Jones, yeah. a healthy scratch. These, this is supposed to be your next generation. Like you said, four games into the season needing that jump start. It's a little worrisome. And again, you know, we're, this category is called overreaction. It doesn't mean the Oilers can't turn this around. But when you have concerns about a team and those exact concerns are coming to life, you can't help but think if they're legitimate. And Steven has something to say. Hmm. He thinks many of our commenters are defending the Oilers' goaltending. I don't know why. We, we got oh, ripped. To, we, 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 we put the clip of the Oilers' season preview. People kept saying, oh, the Oilers are going to be so much better. The goaltending is not a problem, blah, blah, blah. And... <laughs> I don't know about that. You know, it's yeah. good to have confidence in the team, but yeah, it's just doing the same thing over and over to that definition of, of insanity. I don't know uh, to move on now. So this week, uh, starting on, on January 23rd, we have the NWHL season, which did not hand out the league. It wasn't able to hand out the Isabel cup last year because it was canceled due to COVID. And we had Boston and Minnesota in the final Minnesota was going for a second championship in a row so now we've got a six team sort of a bubble tournament it's being called the season every team plays each other once every team plays five games i believe then it's going to be a playoff round isabel cup semifinal it's to, the cup's going to be handed out by february 5th so before we get to this this tournament uh tournament season i want to hear what do you guys think who do you think is the team to watch i, I think it's pretty obvious but maybe you know am i underthinking it so uh ryan we'll start with you who are you looking at as the favorite in this season
0: well you know because it's so short because it's a short we'll we'll call it a short tournament uh even though there is technically a regular season i'm looking at the metropolitan riveters uh simply because i'm looking at madison packer up front as a difference maker and then i'm looking at soroya tinker coming in on the defense you know prime years of her career i believe she's 22 right now so if you think about hockey players That's generally when they hit their peak. I know she's just coming from the NCAA, but, you know, Kale McCarr was pretty good at roughly the same, you know, age. I guess he was a year or two younger. Um, So I'm looking at that and that leads me to believe they could do something special in this, you know, sprint. It's not a marathon, it's actually a sprint this time. You know, we use that in hockey a lot. I'll give a shout out to Boston as well, because I think Sammy Davis could be a difference maker. Uh, you know, I love my young talent, um, but I'm going to go with the Rivers.
2: Yeah, I, I'm going to go with the team that you mentioned at the end, Boston, the Boston, uh, uh, Boston Pride, right? <laughs> the Boston Pride. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, they're a team that I think they lost one game last year and they got better. Like they lost Emily Fluke. And the only reason why they lost her is because they chose not to re-sign her, because um, they have so much talent. You know, Sammy Davis is coming in. Uh, they've got this Vessanova, uh, Teresa Vessanova from, uh, I think she played at Maine. She's a Czech player. And th- those two players apparently are going to be the fastest two players in the league. Um, you know, they're, they're they're strong, you know, up, down, all over the lineup. Uh, You know, they, like I said, they lost one game last year and, uh, and they got better. And, you know, for me, I guess the dark horse for me would be, you know, the Toronto six is going to pull a a Vegas and win it or pull a Minnesota and win it in their first year. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to be a pretty good team. Um, I, from what I've been told by people that know a lot more about this than I do is they worry about the fact that they don't have a lot of NWHL experience on that team. They do have Emily Fluke who signed as a, as a free agent in the off season and apparently is really intent on sticking it back to Boston because she's not happy the way things ended there. Um, but you know they've got a lot of CWHL experience but not NWHL experience and I'm not sure how that's going to translate. Um, but you know they've got Digit Murphy behind the bench, who's you know one of the best coaches in the world, and and uh, they could probably surprise some people too.
1: I think Digit Murphy also all time name Hall of Famer, phenomenal name.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. To yeah, to, to me, I'm going Boston Pride as well. And to me, I, I see a lot of parallels to the Tampa Bay Lightning going into last season. So so you know the Pride they got there, they were close, they were dominant. Lightning had the wins record. The Pride were 23 and one. They had a plus 77 gold differential in 24 games. And, you know, the Lightning in that season where they flopped, they had the Hart Trophy winner and the Vesna, and the Pride swept the awards. You had Jillian Dempsey, scoring champion, MVP, and you have uh, Louisa Salander, the goalie of the year winner. You have Kaylee Fracken, defensive of the year. So basically, they had the Hart, Vezina, Norris, the equivalent, all in the same season. They have the pillars. They have the, the star power. And, of course, I think they should be the hungriest team in the league because they were so close last year. They got robbed of the chance to compete just like the Lightning got when they got swept the year before. So I think Boston finishes the job this year with that stacked roster, just as we saw Tampa do the same in the NHL season last year. So let's uh, get to some listener mailbag questions. The first question, I love this question. It's out of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense. I don't care. I just want to have this, this discussion. It reminds me of that, you know, what is it like? Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? And this one comes from Matthew Bowinger. And Matthew's question is, who would win in a seven-game series? A team of Rob Ray's or a team of John Scott's? Matthew Boehringer for the win. Keep these questions coming. I love this stuff. So, Ryan, we'll start with you. Who do you have in this in this grind of a series?
0: Okay, I probably put more thought into this than I needed to, but I'm going with the team of John Scott's for several reasons. One, reach. Like, defensively, how is How are any of these Rob Rays going to get past any of these John Scotts with the reach advantage that the John Scotts have with him being six foot eight? Also, John Scott played later than Rob Ray, and typically players have gotten better through time, even enforcers, really. Um, And we saw John Scott at the All-Star game. He held his own, even though it was an All-Star game. So we know he's got some hands when he wants to use them. And then, of course, in the physical department, they're both top-ranked enforcers, so that's kind of a wash. So I say John Scott, uh, you know, he does it with his defense, uh, sort of does like a Zdeno-Chara kind of thing where he just cuts off the whole defensive zone with his two John Scott defensemen, and obviously the John Scott goalie would have fantastic uh, reach in the net.
2: Yeah, I, I don't want to watch this series. I really don't want that. this series. Would be death to me. Um, but I'm going to go with Rob Ray um, because I think he's more skilled or less not skilled. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Rob Ray played what 800 games in the league. You know, I mean, and he, and he played those games because he could. St- because he could play. I mean, he was de- he was a he was a designated enforcer for sure. Um, But he wouldn't have been able to play that many games in the NHL if he if he didn't have some modicum of skill. I mean, and he did show that he he would get, you know, what, 10 points a year. I think one year he had seven goals. Um, You know, I just I just don't see John Scott as having like probably no way he can skate near as well as Rob Ray could skate. Um, You know, I I think Rob, I think I think Rob Ray's would would skate circles around the John Scott's. Um, and I just think there's, there's less not skill in Rob Ray than there is in John Scott.
1: <laughs> Interesting take. Uh, I, I'm on team John Scott. Cause my theory is, so Rob Ray did play, you know, however many games you said, Ken, but he played in an era where you didn't need to have that much skill and you still were handed that role on the team. I think if John Scott played in Rob Ray's era, John Scott would have been able to play as many games as Rob Ray because he would have been considered a more important part of the team whereas John Scott played during the death of the enforcer era where he was sort of phased out of the game and I just think because this isn't an era comparison we're comparing you know it's direct player competing from with player from another era I'm with Ryan I just think John Scott's skill level is probably higher just because to even be able to play in the modern NHL you have to have such a higher baseline of skill than you did in in Rob Ray's time And an example I'll use I may have told this on a podcast before I can't remember but I was at a, it was Bile Steel camp a few years ago. And I was watching, you know, on the ice. It was like Tyler Sagan's out there, Connor McDavid. And there's this big guy dangling people like crazy. I was like, who is this guy? This guy's awesome. I looked closer. It was Brian McGratton. Brian McGrattan was dangling guys left and right. And it kind of made me realize like just to be an enforcer, a low, like the, the lowest level skill in the, in the league, you're still that good when you're scrimmaging with, you know, Wayne Simmons was there. Malcolm Subban was the goalie, whatever it was. I was blown away and it kind of changed my understanding of what you need just to be able to to make that baseline in the NHL. So I've got team John Scott and yeah, I don't think it'd be pretty to watch. But then again, John Scott, all-star game MVP. They were feeding him in that game. I was at that game, but he still finished the chances. He still had the ability to put the puck in the net when he was given the chance and he's still shooting on an all-star goal, right? So uh, I'll give it to the John Scotts. The next question uh steven steven says i can score at the all-star game well we'll see let's see you try steven yeah. the next question is from this is this guy okay i am gonna read it in what i think this guy's voice is he's called big old goof When i'm gonna try and do big what I think this guy sounds like okay and so i'm gonna just guess his voice am i the only one who's already sick of seeing the same teams play over and over Jeez, that's his question sorry big old goof but come on it's four games in you're bored already step it up my friend Uh, What do you guys think? Are are you bored already, Ryan? Are you bored of seeing the same teams play over and over or or are you pro?
0: No, I'm fine with it. Uh, Particularly since you get so many rivalry games right now. And I think as the season goes on, you know, no matter who you're a fan of, well, if you're Chicago, it doesn't matter. But um, for most teams, you're going to say, okay, we need X amount of points to get in the playoffs oh, uh, we got to play Washington three times in a row, or it's like, okay, this is crucial. You know, we played Vancouver twice this weekend. We need both of those because we need to leapfrog them in the standings. Um, I, I haven't found it too repetitive. I mean, really teams have only played each other, you know, twice at the most. Um, I think everybody kind of knows what the lay of the land is. So I, I'm cool with it so far. There's enough, there's enough variation that I don't think we're going to get bored. I mean, it's, it's still better than the original six. Era.
2: Yeah, big old goof. <laughs> do, you, do you get tired of watching a seven-game playoff series? Because that's what these things are. Every game's a playoff game. And <clears throat> there's 116 days of this season, right? And I, th- I, ca- I counted it, and I'm pretty sure that, like, so- somewhere in the over – like, I think it's about 100 of those days, there's at least five games a day in 100 of those 116 days. So if you're tired of watching the same old teams play each other just switch it and go watch another game. There are two days this year where there's two or three days this year where there are 15 games, 13 games, 12 games a bunch of days. Like you know, don't worry about it. Man, we've got hockey back like like it's, and and you know, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be kind of interesting as Ryan said. I mean, especially down the stretch here, you know. Now you've got leapfrog three teams and you got to play the first place team you know four times down the stretch i think winnipeg winnipeg played toronto last night and then they they play 10 times this year and they don't play again till like march 9th between but between march 9th and the end of the season they play like nine times so i I don't know i i'm i'm loving it i if you know if i have any complaint about about the nhl right now that one's like way 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 down on my list
1: Yeah, I'm with you, Ken. I think think big old Goof needs a big old hug. Um, (laughs) Yeah,
2: and I think just
1: it's going to build some pretty exciting rivalries because after, you know, you spend the season playing each other however many times, nine, ten, then you're going to play a seven-game series after that against one of those teams. So imagine, you know, uh, the one I mentioned before is like the Kachuk brothers and if there's some bad blood between the Kachuk brothers and then they got to play a seven-game series or something, you know. Maybe Ottawa doesn't make the playoffs, but you get what I'm saying, right? Uh, And I think also this is something that Carl Hagelin I saw was saying uh, in the media the other day was that he thinks a lot of players actually have been hearing this they they like the new schedule with a lot less travel it's like baseball style you're playing you're staying in one city for longer you're, you're putting your roots in a a little longer, your body recovers it. So you're playing more games in a short amount of time, yes, but the travel often wears down players more than anything. So you might get fresher players. You might get better quality hockey as a result of this baseball style schedule. And the thing is, you know, if it gets boring down the road, for now, this is a one off anyway. So we may as well enjoy it. I think there's still novelty. I guess for Big Old Goof, there isn't novelty. He probably pops a stick of gum and like chews it once. He's like, I'm bored of this gum. And he tosses it <laughs> in the garbage. Sorry, Big Old Goof, for ripping on you here, but you know just for our entertainment, I guess. Uh, that's <laughs> big old goof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, next question is from Vith Vijay. And Vith asks, can the Habs realistically take a run at Pierre-Luc Dubois? If so, what would a package look like? Well, Ryan, I know you wrote about this last week, so you should have the floor to answer this first. Go.
0: Yeah, I mean, they can certainly do it, whether they're willing to pay the price is the big question, you know, you see a lot of deals out there from fans where they'll say, oh, you know, we'll give them Ryan Paling and a first and maybe Kakeniemi, uh for Dubois. It's like, OK, yeah, but that's because you're willing to give up those guys. If I'm Yarmo Kekalainen, the GM of the Columbus Blue Jackets, I'm saying either give me Nick Suzuki or give me Romanoff or hang up the phone because I don't have to deal Pierre-Luc Dubois. I can hold on to him. I could trade him to Boston if I wanted to, and no one can do anything about it. So don't come here with, you know, to me with these second rate deals. If you're going to get a player of that caliber and purely has a legit number one center in the NHL, great two way guy, a player like that, you have to be willing to sacrifice and the price is going to be higher than you want it to be uh, because you have to think about the other team, team's perspective. Columbus is a legit playoff contender. We've seen them, you know, do a bit of damage already. They're not, they're not looking for charity. Like they're not just gonna be like, yes, please Habs, go win the cup uh, with one of our best players. They're in the hunt, they're probably better situated than the Habs are right now. Um, so there certainly could be a deal out there, but it's, it's gonna be a painful one if you're the have, you you have to give something substantial, and to me, it has to be either Suzuki or Romanov,
2: which to me is is exactly why I don't think I don't see a fit. I don't see a fit there at all be, because of the fact that either either Columbus is, is going to have to lower their expectations or Montreal is going to have to go off the board. And I mean, I just talked about Nick Suzuki being the next Patrice Bergeron. I think if if Montreal even considers. Trading Nick Suzuki for Pierre Luc Dubois, Mark Bergevin should be fired. Um, you know, I mean, it, they chased this number one center for a million years, and what did they do? They traded Jonathan. They traded Mikhail Sergachev for Jonathan Durant. That would be like not the same, but it would be akin to trading Alex Romanoff for for Pierre Luc Dubois. I, I think Montreal's got a good thing going here. I think you know they found their number one center. They're deep. They've got some good, some good, uh, some good sort of um, mojo going they've got a good farm system coming up um, you know I mean if you want to trade futures if you want it to be a Cole Caulfield maybe uh, you know a Ryan Paling I suppose uh, even a Kotkaniemi, um, you know I can see that from Montreal's side but I'm not sure I can see it from Columbus's side and I, I just don't see a fit I mean you're not going to trade them to get Josh Anderson back <laughs> you know I mean it's, it's so I, I just don't see a fit.
1: Yeah, I'm with you guys, and especially because of the idea that it's an in-season trade. You know, I do think in terms of actual value, a package like Cock and Yemi and a first and Ryan Paling, something like that is fair. But like you said, Ryan, it doesn't make sense now because Columbus considers itself a win now team. So you're basically just punting the season if you make that deal. Uh, And on the other hand, any just by the way Montreal's roster is constructed, any pieces that make for a fair hockey trade, I think would hurt Montreal too much because like you guys said, Suzuki, Romanov. So I don't think it is a fit either. I could see it being a fit in the off season if Columbus has a bad year. If, if you know they end up missing the playoffs, you never know what's going to happen in this short season. If they disappoint, maybe they want to reevaluate things and they are willing to take a step back. But otherwise, I don't see this trade working at all during the season. Uh, we'll do one more reader question before our rapid fire game. The last question is from Brendan. Brendan with an E-N, like Brendan Morrow, if you will. Brendan Dillon. Cool story bro. Brandon wants to know if the Penguins are out of the playoffs by the trade deadline do they move Chris Letang or Evgeny Malkin? I I don't think it's it's going to happen because it's funny I, I do think that COVID makes these kind of trades a lot more difficult. So for example Evgeny Malkin's got a full no move clause. Uh, Chris Letang has a no moving clause and he's got a, it's a complicated one that has a 12 team no trade list. So you know, it's already hard to make trades, I think, during the pandemic, especially if it's going to be cross-border trade where you've got to quarantine. Even if it's state to state, the rules could be different. There could be some minor quarantine periods that have to happen. And if you're one of those players who's living in this world, this quarantine world, and, you know, being traded to another team, I think has a different impact than normal in terms of being able to see your family. And you have the power to block that trade. If you're Genny Malkin, for example, I just, I don't know. I, I think it's more complicated than normal. And I don't see it happening in the season, uh, maybe in the off season, if, if either guy really wanted to change, they're going to the final year of their deal. But I'm going to say, no, I don't think it's going to happen. What do you think, Kenny?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, don't, I don't see that happening. I think that, you know, I mean, they have both got this year and next year left on their deals. I, I like the thought of it. I find the thought of it very, very intriguing um, that you could get, you know, say at the trade deadline, you could get an Evgeny Malkin for this year and next year. Or a crystal tank for this year and next year because those are the trade deadlines deals that I think that are the, the most intriguing and the and the the, the best ones to explore. Uh, I like I like the thought of it. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen for the reasons that you said, Matt. And two, I think I just don't think Jim Rutherford is wired that way. I, I I just think even if the even if the Pittsburgh Penguins miss the playoffs this year, I think Jim Rutherford would go into the offseason saying. And I mean, we don't see it, but he would go into the offseason and say, you know, we just make a tweak here and there. We get a goalie. We do this. We take another run at it next year with these guys on the last year of their deal. And, you know, I, I just don't think Jim's wired that way. I think he he wants to win now. And I think he he knows he has players that obviously have won. I don't know that they have the capacity to to deliver the goods again, but uh, but I, I, don't, I just don't see... Jim, you know, Jim's been around for a long time. He's won a couple of cups. He's towards the end of his career. I don't don't know that he'd be wanting to be in a situation where he's got to tear everything down and build it back up again. I think he sort of is wired to just keep going for runs at it.
0: You think Penguins problem is that Jim Rutherford has put them in this position where we're essentially waiting for them to completely implode uh, because you have these older high around them to actually do any damage. And, you know, they have no trade clauses. I, I feel like Essentially, what happens? Eventually, Sidney Crosby is going to retire. Eventually, Malkin's going to retire, and the Penguins will have nothing left. I mean, they have no pipeline whatsoever right now, um, and you just you can't replace those guys. So, um, in the interim, they're going to stutter a little, and you might as well just let them play at the string. I think it would kind of cool if guys like Crosby and. Even LeTang and, and Malkin only play. In Pittsburgh. I see Malkin heading back to Russia and maybe doing a bit of a Pavel Datsuk for a couple of years. Maybe even after this contract is over, he'll be in his like mid then. Um, Letang, I don't know. Maybe I don't know if he would want to play in Montreal once this contract's done for like a year or two. I have no insider info there. Um, Crosby, obviously, I can only see him in Pittsburgh. Um, but once this era is over. It's going to take a monumental reset and I, I don't see anything positive happening until then. And then when that happens, obviously there's going to be a lot of pain for three, or five years. Oh yeah.
1: Well said fellas. So we're going to finish off the podcast with the rapid fire game. Ken, you are the host this time. I will be the first question answer. And again, It's not going to be necessarily rapid. There could be some technical delays, medium fire, (laughs) and uh, we are ready to start. Kenny, you can. All right, boys.
2: Ding, ding. Let's go. Best coming of age movie ever.
1: Whoa, whoa. whoa,
2: That's tough,
1: man. Best of all time. Yes. (sighs) Steven says American Pie. Man, that's such a broad, such a big topic. I can't it's think rapid about the
2: fiery right, Matt. It's it's rapid fire. Yeah. Right? That's what we call it. First rapid fire. Kevin,
1: Best coming of age movie of all time. Uh, I'll say American Beauty, but it's 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 tainted because of Kevin Spacey's. Uh, okay. What's happened to him? But okay. it, I like the messages in it.
0: I'm gonna go with the Goonies. Classic movie. They all learned valuable lessons about friendship and
2: teamwork. Yeah, well, of course, the correct answer is stand by me. Um, That was my other one. Yeah, I mean, come on, you know, sitting around the fire. Hey, you know, who'd win a fight between Superman and Mighty Mouse? Yeah, but Mighty Mouse is a cartoon and Superman's a real guy. (laughs) Okay. Um, Zdeno Chara, not playing in Boston anymore, signs a one-year deal with The Washington Capitals, a deal that was broken by the Hockey News, by the way, Um, and um, so he's probably left a lot of little kids in Boston disillusioned and, and heartbroken with that deal, and I want you to tell me, what was the deal that your team made when you were like 10 years old that you just couldn't figure out that broke your heart?
1: Ooh. Okay, am I allowed to answer non-hockey? Because I don't like discussing my my hockey allegiances. Um, Yeah. I always keep that close to the vest. Okay, so a deal that broke my heart uh, when I was young. I mean, I wasn't even that young. Just when the Jays said goodbye to Roy Halladay, I'm I'm a lifelong Toronto Blue Jays fan, and Roy Halladay is my favorite Blue Jay of all time. And I think just the fact that they couldn't make it work with him, they had to just let him take a shot at winning, uh, it it killed me because, uh, you know, I think he's phenomenal, and, and he was, of course, before his tragic death, but, you know, he went to Philly, and what does he do? He throws a perfect game, and he throws a no-hitter in his first playoff game, and it's like, look, this could have been you in Toronto, and It was, it was a killer for me, so Roy Halladay trade to Philly. Mm.
0: This one's easy for me. It was the uh, Russ Cortnell for John Cordick trade. I'm um, pretty sure I cried, and then <laughs> I'm pretty sure the first game Toronto and Montreal played after that. Montreal won like 10-3.
2: <laughs> <laughs> for me, guys, it was it was the, the summer of 1974, and Frank Mahovlich signed with the Toronto Toros of the World Hockey Association. He had just played three and a half years for the Montreal Canadiens, won two cups, was amazing, scored his 500 goal, had like 130 points in four in less than four or no, 130 goals in less than four years. It was crazy. He was so good. He was in his mid-30s. And like the 11-year-old me just couldn't figure out why would you do something like that? Like I had no concept that he probably was signing in the WHA for like double what he was making in the NHL. And I had no concept of that. I was like, it was like, you're playing, you're playing for the Montreal Canadiens. Like they're the best team going and you're leaving. I don't, I don't understand. I don't get it. I was just so disillusioned. And then he went on to play three or four more years in the WHA. Had some pretty decent years, but he could have won a couple of more cups with Montreal because shortly after that, they went on their four cups in in four years uh, Mm -hmm. string there. So um, yeah, that was mine. Um, Okay, so what song do you guys know all the words to that you're embarrassed about?
1: Ooh, embarrassed. Um, I'm I'm extremely difficult to embarrass, so I don't know if there's any song that embarrasses me, but you know, one that someone else could be embarrassed by. Obviously, Disney, like "Let It Go." But uh, I'll I'll say, you know, I I have a soft spot for boy band music, so Backstreet Boys. I want it that way. Okay, Ryan. Mm.
0: Yeah, this is tough because I avoid pop music as much as possible. Um, I don't know. There's there's probably some Beatles songs that I know all the words to, just through osmosis, like, or like, like Brown Eyed Girl or something like that by Van Morrison. I probably know all the words to that. Yeah, because that's
2: such a bad song, and you should be embarrassed about it. You should be embarrassed about liking Beatles. Songs. You that song? Come on, Ryan. you should
1: be embarrassed about being embarrassed. <laughs> no,
2: I'm not. For me, for me, there's there's probably two of them. Old School, Copa Cabana by Barry Manilow. I know every word to that song. And uh, more uh, sort of newer one, Call Me Maybe by Carly Jepsen. Ooh, nice. Carly Ray Jepsen, so yeah. Um, I just love Carly, J, Carly Ray Jepsen, so it's okay. Oh, okay. All right. Um, okay, so we've talked a bit about this, but I want to know which, ultimately, which Montreal Canadiens draft pick defenseman is going to have the better career. Is it going to be Alexander Romanoff or is it going to be Mikhail Sergachev? Ooh. Uh, Love both, but I'm Team
1: Romanov.
0: <clears throat> I can say Romanov as well. I think he'll put up more
2: points. I, I think I think on a personal level, Romanov will have a better career, but I think Mikhail Kuznetsov will have a better. He'll he'll win more cups um, because of who he's playing with. So, uh, and the last question is okay. So, it's three o'clock in the morning. Probably had a couple of beers while well, you haven't, Ryan. But you, you're it's three o'clock in the morning and you're starving. Like you're bordering on, you know, actual like passing out. You're so hungry. And your two choices are gas station sushi or a, a big bite hot dog from 7-Eleven. Which one do you take?
1: I'm going with the hot dog. Cause yeah, the, the sushi in the gas station. <laughs> it's like, who knows how long that's been there. Uh, Going hot dog, but I want to give a shout out to my, my actual 3 a.m. combo, which I invented my own combo at McDonald's. I call it the shame combo. You get a double quarter pounder meal, and then you order a, a side of McNuggets and you order two drinks because you're ashamed that it's all for you. People think it's for two people. It's for you. That's my combo, the shame combo.
2: And you, and you did that in Nashville, right? On your on your bed. In the hotel. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. The shame combo. I love it. So Ryan, what's your what's your answer?
0: I'm going with seven hot dogs because I've definitely before. And also shout out to 7-Eleven Taquitos, uh, which are a nice alternative and also uh, just as cheap.
2: Nice. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I'd probably go with the hot dog too. I just I just can't imagine where the desperation level is in your life to eat to not only eat something at 7-Eleven, but to have it delivered to your house. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. And my son who's in university, fourth year university at Laurier said to me, he said, you know, dad, they're just, they're just, they're just putting, they're just sort of targeting those commercials at young people who smoke a lot of weed at night.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, for sure.
2: <laughs> and get the munchies. So. Yeah, that's it for me. Peace out.
1: All right, good. Stumper, as a movie guy, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed at my, how long I took to answer the coming of age. And I know there's a better answer out there. It'll haunt me for a while that's okay. When I'm up at 3am, I'll order a shame combo. (laughs) Thank you for listening and watching everyone. We'll be back next week.